This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. How are refugee applications decided in Australia and what impact do these processes have on the lives of people seeking asylum? This was the focus of the first panel at the 2019 Caldor Centre Conference, Good Decisions, Achieving Fairness in Refugee Law, Policy and Practice. The panel was chaired by consultant and trainer Om Dungal. My name is Om Dungal. I'm formerly a refugee from Bhutan and many of you would be associating that with gross national happiness. But you may not know that Bhutan also has the distinction of being one of the highest per capita refugee generator in the world. And here I am today. I have absolute honor to chair this session. Thanks to the Caldor Center for giving me this opportunity. As I speak, I'm reminded of over 25 million refugees around the world. And I feel so grateful and lucky to be out here given the asylum by this beautiful country. Thank you, Australia. In the next hour and a half, we'll be talking about deciding refugee claim. Why is it important? Because sometimes it means a matter of life and death for people who are seeking asylum. The life in between, and the life in between the time you put in an application and the time you get that decision, it's itself a lifetime for those of us who put in that asylum claim. It's filled with anxiety and fear, and a negative decision can mean absolutely devastating. Having personally experienced this firsthand, I really commend Caldo Center not only for picking up this very important topic for discussion today, but also pulling together a panel with such distinguished credentials. Thank you, guys. The first speaker was Regina Jeffries, a Scientia PhD scholar at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law and a visiting scholar at the UCLA Centre for the Study of International Migration. Her presentation was entitled Street-Level Bureaucrats, Discretion and Data, Pre-Screening Protection at the Border. All right, thank you, Om. Um, it's actually really refreshing to be in a room full of people so interested in bureaucracy. So it's going to be a great presentation. Um, so decisions that impact on the legal claims of asylum seekers are actually dispersed throughout a network of interdependent actors with responsibility for some aspect of implementing a transnational normative framework. A framework which includes norms like access to fair and efficient procedures for refugee status determination, or RSD, as well as the uh, fundamental norms of non-refoulement and non-penalization. These actors may be government officials, they may be private contractors, or they may even be technologies responsible for things like risk assessments or decision support. These types of decisions may often also be hidden from traditional forms of legal review in part because formal legal sources like treaties, legislation, regulation, tribunal, or court decisions either do not reach them, 
do not uh, constrain them or both. Whether in formal RSD processes or in deciding whether to provide asylum seekers with access to identity documents or access to legal service providers in detention, low-level government officials routinely make discretionary decisions based upon organizational, legal, practical, and other considerations that factor into how legal obligations are actually implemented. So rather than talking about the RSD process itself, um, which rightly deserves its central place, placement, obviously, in the transnational refugee law framework, I'd like to shift focus, to zoom out a bit, if you will, to talk about the universe of actors and decisions that touch upon and influence RSD, sometimes significantly, but which fall into an area of legal decision-making more often described in terms of implementation gaps, bureaucratic discretion, or governance rather than legal compliance or state responsibility. This talk arises in part out of my personal experience working with and sometimes against institutions responsible for referring asylum seekers to an RSD process, supporting asylum seekers through an RSD process, or actually adjudicating claims within an RSD process. And it's also based upon more than two years of in-depth research that I've conducted uh, in Australia, examining the role of domestic street-level bureaucrats or lower-level government officials who make decisions as part of the implementation of the obligation of non-refoulement. It's uh, some of this research also I've actually had the pleasure of conducting with Asher Hirsch and Dan Gesselbosch, who I know is here as well. So, hey, Dan, talking about entry screening. <laughs> All right, so this talk is organized into three parts. So first, I'll begin by outlining the idea of looking to non-traditional or informal sites of legal decision-making in order to introduce my two preliminary research findings. Second, I'll take you through an examination of the Australian policy of entry screening for asylum seekers arriving by air to illustrate how these two research findings sometimes play out in practice. And then finally, I'll discuss how hidden decisions enabled by policies like entry screening and sometimes obscured by their absence from formal legal sources and data collection practices may be incompatible with the norm of non-refoulement and also frustrate the dialectic and dialogic process of norm internalization. So Australia has a contested relationship with the obligation of non-refoulement, both in C, at sea in relation to policies like turnbacks and takebacks as well as within its territorial borders, having adopted legislation removing non-refoulement as an explicit consideration in a non-citizen's removal from Australia. But legislative manifestations of a particular contextual understanding of the limits of non-refoulement, as well as other traditional sites of lawmaking and implementation, are far from the only spaces that we as academics, policymakers, and lawmakers should be looking for evidence of norm internalization. Exploring these non-traditional sites of norm interpretation and implementation, it implicates questions of access and transparency, but it also raises questions around the design of institutions and legal frameworks meant to constrain and guide the discretion of states in the implementation of their international legal obligations. So examining the interactions within and between actors and institutions responsible for some aspect of a transnational legal framework actually provides a fuller picture of contestation and compliance with international law over time, as well as the salience of a particular international norm. These interactions also tend to implicate core questions of treaty interpretation. 
So the legal framework not only contains spaces allowing for discretionary decision making, so some of which we've talked, heard about earlier today, um, for example, in determining the credibility of a particular uh, applicant for protection. The framework also contains spaces of ambiguity, susceptible to restrictive or expansive legal interpretations or bureaucratic classifications which place people outside of the RSD process, which may not necessarily implicate traditional formal legal decision making. So in the course of my research, two preliminary findings have begun to take shape. First is there is an explicit awareness within at least some parts of the Australian Public Service of the tension between the general duty to make decisions and exercise powers in accordance with legal principle and legislation, as well as the political context articulated by high-level officials which influences bureaucratic culture and public service career trajectories. The extent to which the political context becomes part of the formal or informal rules of the game actually can influence how informal decision-making of lower officials takes place. And these considerations may also have a significant impact on whether or how a norm like non-refoulement actually regulates state behavior. And the second finding is that a lack of appropriate compliance and accountability frameworks for data collection and agency action actually removes opportunities for contesting everyday practices that rely upon legal assumptions or produce legal effects. So hidden decisions may proliferate, persist, and may undermine the stickiness or potency of international norms like non-refoulement. So placing norms in a particular social and legal context means acknowledging and examining all of the spaces where norms are interpreted, contested, and practiced. And to illustrate these points, though, with a real-world example, I'd like to turn to Australia's relationship with the obligation of non-refoulement in the context of asylum seekers who arrive in the country by air. So let's begin with a so-called, uh, the journey of a so-called air arrival from the time the traveler has successfully boarded a flight to Australia. So as you can see from the diagram above, after boarding, the traveler actually still has to pass through a number of additional security and immigration checks before being allowed to actually enter Australia. So before arrival, the Australian Border Force, ABF, and the department will analyze passenger details provided by airlines, as well as information and airline reservation systems, in order to identify traveler risk factors. These risk factors take into consideration, for example, whether an individual traveling on a visitor visa might be likely to make a protection claim. That fact in itself could actually result in the cancellation of the person's visa before they even arrive in Australia. Upon arrival in Australia, the traveler begins the process of what's called immigration clearance. So after disembarking the aircraft, they're routed to an immigration and customs checkpoint where ABF officials confirm whether the person has a valid travel document, they confirm the person's identity, and confirm whether the person arrived on the correct visa. The traveler must leave the airport entirely, not only the customs and immigration zone, before being, before being allowed to actually enter Australia and be considered immigration cleared. So again, traveler risk factors like the likelihood of making a protection claim can actually inform ABF officials as to who to question uh, when they're actually conducting those examinations. Though international and Australian law make clear that no a non-citizen who arrives at an Australian airport uh, may make a claim of protection at any time while in immigration clearance, it's unclear whether this always occurs in practice. So there are several general scenarios that might occur during the immigration clearance process if a traveler has a fear of return. 
So first, a traveler might um, express a fear of return to a primary ABF officer, uh, at which point the traveler would be referred to a second ABF officer um, that includes a review of the protection claim. So that'd be the first scenario. The second, the traveler may not express a fear to that first official for whatever reason, um, but is referred to a second official anyway because of questions about their identity, immigration status, or criminal history. And then at that second official point, that that's when the person raises the protection claim, and then the person should be referred for an entry screening interview with this uh, after that second person. In the third scenario, a traveler might express a fear of return to either one or both of these ABF officials, so either the first or the second, but is not reviewed for a re uh, not referred for a review of the protection claim. Um, that scenario obviously would violate both domestic and international law and could potentially result in refoulement. Or the fourth scenario, the traveler enters with a visa, passes through immigration clearance, leaves the airport, and at some point after entry applies for a protection visa through the onshore protection cohort. This is, um, this is the, the narrative that we've been hearing a lot in the media lately. It's this fourth group that, that the media has mostly been focused on. But I want to focus on the thir first three categories of, of people. So travelers who raise a protection claim and immigration clearance are meant to go through a process called entry screening. And it's a process that the Department of Home Affairs actually conducts in order to decide whether the traveler should be removed from Australia or be allowed to lodge a protection claim. So as in the first two scenarios where the traveler raises a protection claim and ABF refers them for an entry screening interview, the ABF, another ABF official is going to conduct that entry screening interview in order to explore the protection claim. After the interview, that official will then email a duty delegate at the humanitarian program operations branch of the department with the results of the interview and the traveler's information. The duty delegate then will decide, based on the emailed information from the pre-screening interview, uh, whether the traveler's reasons for claiming that they can't return to their home country are sufficient to allow the traveler to lodge a protection application. So the traveler will be screened in if the department decides that Australia might owe them protection obligations, or the traveler will be screened out and placed on a pathway to removal if the delegate decides that they do not present a fear of any serious or significant harm. There appears to be no set time frame for the duty delegate to make these decisions. Um, it, the policy does, though, seem to anticipate that a decision might take longer than an hour or two. Um, while a traveler may initially be detained at the airport, they may also be moved to a detention center or an alternative place of detention like a hotel. So in the past, the duty delegate might have been woken late at night to make a decision or early in the morning. However, it's unclear whether that remains current practice. So, Turning to the final piece of the discussion, what does the entry screening process, though, tell us about street-level bureaucrats' discretion and data? The entry screening process isn't found in legislation or regulation. It's part of a department policy of inquiring into a non-citizen's reasons <coughs> for travel and whether the department might owe them protection obligations. The policy has not been the subject of judicial review or even academic or public discussion until quite recently. Yet several aspects of this policy and associated hidden decisions speak to the highly contextual and contested nature of the process of norm internalization, a process that cannot be fully appreciated or analyzed without insight into everyday bureaucratic practices. So entry screening provides an example of my two findings outlined previously. 
First, the extent to which the political context becomes part of the formal or informal bureaucratic rules of the game may influence the decision-making of lower-level officials. And it might also have a significant impact on whether or how a norm like non-reformant actually regulates state behavior. The most pressing legal issue in relation to asylum seekers who arrive by air is whether Australia is meeting its protection obligations under both international and domestic law. In other words, are travelers who raise protection claims in Australian airports being allowed to lodge those claims in every case? And are the Australian entry screening procedures cons consistent with international law? And preliminary research suggests that that may not always be the case. When a traveler arrives at immigration clearance, their visa may be canceled if they're found to have traveled to make a protection claim. So where an ABF official prioritizes removal without having regard to non-refoulement, the traveler is practically, not legally speaking, barred from raising a protection claim. My research suggests that whether an ABF official refers a traveler for entry screening might depend on how the action may be viewed by supervisors, the tone set by the government of the day, or even the official's own view of the legitimacy of the claim. Where agency culture and rules suggest a more restrictive view of asylum, a decision not to refer the traveler for examination of the protection claim may not elicit a negative response from supervisors. In terms of the second preliminary finding, entry screening provides an example of the lack of, pro of appropriate frameworks for data collection and agency action. It removes opportunities for contesting these everyday practices that rely upon legal assumptions or produce legal <coughs> effects. So two aspects of, of the data collection process merit mention. So first is the agency's use of technological tools to assist in decisions regarding whether a traveler's risk profile indicates that they might be more likely to seek protection. And second, the lack of appropriate architecture to collect data that provide a picture of whether and how entry screening functions in relation to the underlying legal ob obligations, including those imposed by the norm of non-refoulement. So ABF officials routinely rely upon technology like algorithms that produce risk profiles that impact visa cancellation decisions. And these screening tools allow officials to evaluate whether a person might be more likely to seek protection. But the factors that these technologies use to inform these types of decisions are unknown. This next slide is the second part, the second aspect that I'm talking about. So with the lack of appropriate architecture to collect data that provide a picture of entry screening. This top part of the slide shows an overview of the current data collection processes for protection claims made at or before immigration clearance. And the top bar is a typical process. But when a traveler is referred for entry screening, ABF officials, they must record an inward referral to the ABF official who will then conduct the screening interview. But the structure of the department's record keeping allows for people to be referred under either a refugee code or an other code. So where the protection claim is raised with the first ABF official, as in the first example, the claim should be recorded in most cases. But the second graphic demonstrates why the current process fails to catch all claims for protection made at or before immigration clearance. Where an ABF official chooses an other code in making the referral to the second officer, or the traveler, for whatever reason, doesn't raise the protection claim until the second interview, protection claims are not recorded. The result is that the department, by its own admission, does not have an accurate count of the number of individuals raising protection claims at Australian airports. So the hidden decisions and everyday practices of low-level state actors are critical to better designing laws, 
legal regimes and institutions to actively manage compliance with sometimes competing norms over time, and where we resort to only formal sources of law as evidence of the norm's salience, or the executive's interpretation and implementation of norms are shielded from view, the dialectic and dialogic process of norm internalization becomes a monologue. Thank you. The next speaker was Human Rights Commissioner Edward Santo, who addressed the topic, Assessing Asylum Claims for Members of the Legacy Caseload. When I was listening to um, Hilary Evans Cameron's excellent paper earlier this morning, I was immediately taken back to this uh, windowless, stuffy room that I found myself in uh, before I was Human Rights Commissioner, when I was a, a lawyer. Um, it was not a, um, a, an interview with a, uh, an asylum seeker. This person had already um, been accepted as a refugee. Um, and the reason that I and a colleague uh, were interviewing this person was because this person had been um, the victim of uh, a war crime, um, a war crime committed in the Sri Lankan Civil War. Um, I was the secondary interviewer. Um, the main interviewer was much more skilled than, than I am at, at that particular task. And I remember it so vividly. Um, this person was deeply affected, um, even though a number of years had passed by these events, um, and had enormous difficulty in communicating about them. Uh, my, my fellow interviewer, as I say, was incredibly skilled at drawing out um, this person, but after about an hour, we realised we'd, we'd made almost no progress. Um, we actually knew the core facts of what had happened to him um, that through corroborating evidence that we'd already received. Um, so in a sense, this was providing some further detail. And, and as I say, after about an hour, um, this witness um, went out of the room, uh, threw up violently, and then came back. And um, eventually, over several days, we were able to slowly elicit this person's story. And thinking about that and thinking about how our system works, um, it seems um, highly unlikely uh, that had this person been um, telling their story in a refugee status determination situation, uh, that that story would have been able to be received um, and its truth tested um, in an accurate way. Um, I say all that because when People like me um, articulate the sorts of concerns that I'm about to articulate about um, refugee status determination and appeals processes. Those things can feel and sound achingly abstract. I know that they are not. I also know that you know that they are not. I'm going to be focusing particularly today on uh, the so-called legacy caseload. That's not a term um, that they chose, certainly not one that we chose. It was a term chosen by the government, but for ease of reference, I'll, I'll continue to use it. Earlier this year, we at the Commission uh, released a major report that assesses the experiences of people in this legacy caseload group. The, as many of you will be aware, there are 30,000 people in that group, and it includes families and children. The government allowed these people to remain in Australia while their refugee claims are being processed, rather than being sent to Nauru or Manus Island. 
Our report does acknowledge some positives, and so I want to get them out, out front. The vast majority of these people are living in the communities, that is, they're not in immigration detention, and the vast majority have at least some rights to work and healthcare. Nevertheless, the Commission is deeply worried about this group. The fundamental problem that they face is that they've been waiting over five years, and in some cases much longer than that, for long-term protection. International law is crystal clear. While their claims for protection are processed, the Australian government must protect their basic rights. However, our report highlights this group's vulnerability, with many experiencing or at risk of destitution, homelessness and worse. Our consultation for the report drew on the expertise of over 130 doctors, psychologists, psychiatrists, lawyers, social workers, caseworkers, academics, uh, policy experts and community leaders. I'm conscious that uh, many of you are here today and I pay tribute also to your vital work and your crucial contributions to our own work. The report examines a range of human rights issues, but today I'll focus on refugee determination and review. Those processes are unique to members of this legacy caseload group, and they cause serious barriers for these asylum seekers presenting their refugee claims. The processes also make it harder for decision makers to be fully informed in assessing visa applications. We hold grave concerns about the human rights and broader implications of asylum decisions and appeals made under this legal framework. So just to give you a little bit of background, the Legacy Caseload Act was passed in 2014 and it established, as I say, a new bespoke process for assessing refugee claims and appeals processes. This is known as the fast track assessment regime. So fast track assessment applies only to asylum seekers who arrive by boat between the 13th of August 2012 and the 1st of January 2014. If an individual's protection visa application is unsuccessful at the primary stage, they can't appeal to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Instead, they may only seek merits review with the Immigration Assessment Authority, or IAA. The statistics about the decision-making by the AA are really interesting. So far, about half of the full cohort of 30,000 people have received a temporary visa, a TPV or a CHEV. The remainder are either waiting for an initial decision on their refugee status, that's about a quarter, just under a quarter, when you think well over five and a half years, um, over 6,000 people are still waiting for a primary decision, or their application was refused with many awaiting merits or judicial review. The IAA differs significantly from ordinary merits review in the AAT. We consider that the more limited fast-track assessment process does not provide an adequate system of merits review and does not ensure robust and fully informed assessments. Now I'll focus on a few specific concerns which are kind of summarised in the infographic behind me. When the AAT carries out merits review, it may take into account new information that was not before the primary decision maker. Typically, it conducts hearings during which evidence can be tested and additional evidence can be presented orally. By contrast, the IAA must generally review decisions by reference only to the material used by the primary decision maker. Other than in exceptional circumstances, 
the IAA does not request or accept new information. Generally, it proceeds without interviewing the visa applicant. Now, that puts the onus on asylum seekers subject to this process to provide all information relevant to their refugee claims during the very first stage of visa processing. And that, of course, poses really serious challenges for vulnerable applicants, especially for asylum seekers who have suffered significant trauma, have little understanding of Australian migration law, and have li limited English language or literacy skills. It's not uncommon for asylum seekers initially to withhold information about their experiences of persecution for precisely the reasons that uh, Professor Evans Cameron described before. And largely because those experiences are traumatic or due to feelings of shame or fear. In other words, the very reason why an asylum seeker may be reluctant to provide information um, that is of assistance to their claim may actually support their claim. It's common, especially among women and girls who have experienced gender-based violence and have very understandable reasons for not disclosing those experiences at first instance. For that reason, the UNHCR advises that, and I'm quoting here, particularly for victims of sexual violence or other forms of trauma, second and subsequent interviews may be needed in order to establish trust and to obtain all necessary information. <coughs> However, under the fast-track assessment process, they may not have any further opportunity to do so and often simply do not have any opportunity to do so. A hallmark of Australia's external merits review system is that, is that the tribunal stands in the shoes of the original decision maker. When I saw Mary Crock in the audience today, I remember when she taught me administrative law more years ago than I'd like to uh, admit to. I remember her saying that again and again. In other words, the tribunal exercises the same powers that, and, and fact-finding um, powers included within that as the initial decision-maker. If anything, in fact, a tribunal in practice tends to be more rigorous in ascertaining the key facts. By contrast, the way in which the IAA is established cuts away at that principle. Especially in our common law system, an oral hearing is often viewed as essential to allow decision-makers to assess credibility by observing the applicant's demeanour and presentation and giving them an opportunity to clarify any inconsistencies in what they've said. Where asylum seekers have limited documentary evidence to support their claims, as is often the case for applicants claiming persecution based on their sexual orientation or gender identity, for example, decision-makers may rely primarily on an applicant's oral testimony to assess their credibility. The absence of an oral hearing may mean that decision-makers simply cannot make an accurate or complete credibility assessment. Fundamentally, the Commission considers that the fast-track process is not an adequate safeguard against reformal. There is a significant risk that some people in need of protection will be denied refugee status and removed as from Australia, contrary to Australia's international law obligations regarding reformal. Statistics tell us that the IAA agrees with a higher proportion of primary decisions than bodies previously tasked with conducting merits reviews, such as the AAT. 
The AAT agreed with the primary decision maker in around 20% of cases for asylum seekers who arrive by boat. By contrast, the IAA flips that. It agrees in around 86% of cases. 86% versus 20%. It's a huge difference. Now, we, we looked in at those statistics a bit more closely to see if it, 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 that, that those sorts of statistics are borne out when you look at people by reference to their country of origin. Um, and as this slide uh, attempts to show, the disparity remains even when you compare specific countries of, of origin. For example, for asylum seekers from Afghanistan, the AAT agreed with the primary decision maker in around 10% of cases, whereas the IAA, IAA agrees in around 82% of cases. It seems reasonable to infer that a key cause of these disparities is differences in the fast-track assessment process, rather than the objective merits of the application under review. People who have received a negative decision at both the primary and merits review stages may apply for judicial review. A court, however, can only correct errors of law, and indeed a narrow species of errors of law. In other words, unlike merits review, a court can't consider whether the decision itself was correct or prefer preferable. So judicial review is important, but it can't address the limitations that I've described in the fast track assessment process. There's a real risk that fast track assessment will lead to wrong findings that individuals uh, fail to meet the definition of refugee. And of course, that could bring into Australia into breach of its international law obligations. In that context, it's worth noting that the legacy caseload introduced a very unusual provision. Because of the legacy caseload, we now have section 197C of the Migration Act, which provides that Australia's non-reformant obligations are irrelevant. That's the word that the Act uses, irrelevant, in removing a non-citizen from this country. Let me be clear. We need a rigorous, robust, process to determine whether someone is a refugee and to review decisions to correct for mistakes. The stakes are high. An error can result in an individual being returned to a place where they face persecution or even death. The Commission recommends that the fast track system be abolished and that those who have been unsuccessful in the process be given the opportunity to apply for merits review by the AAT. In the meantime, the Australian government should not involuntarily remove from Australia any asylum seeker who's been subject to that fast track process until they've had the opportunity to be reassessed under a fairer and more robust process. The last point I want to make is that people seeking asylum face significant challenges in navigating Australia's migration processes and in lodging protection visa applications. Access to legal advice and assistance is critical to ensure people understand the RSD process and lodge applications that are complete, accurate and provide all relevant information. It's even more important given the limitations in Fast Track. However, most people in the legacy caseload are simply ineligible to receive free government funded legal advice and assistance. And as many in the community on bridging visas are on very low incomes, they struggle to, to afford private legal or migration agent fees. Yes, it's true that a number of NGOs and law firms provide free legal assistance, 
And I know a number of you are represented here today and I can't thank you enough for that vital work that you do. But as you know better than I do, uh, there are far more people who need assistance than you collectively are able to provide. We've also heard reports that some people have been exploited by unscrupulous lawyers or migration agents who simply lacked sufficient expertise and lodged inaccurate applications. We at the Commission consider that these restrictions on access to government-funded legal advice, measures that apply only to some asylum seekers based on their mode of arrival, could discriminate unjustifiably against certain asylum seekers and may effectively operate as penalties for irregular entry into Australia. So to conclude, people in the legacy caseload are living around us. They're living in our cities, suburbs and towns. They are our neighbours and they have been for many years. Yet their struggles remain far from view. They're unable to participate fully in community life. They're unable to plan for their future and they're stuck in a holding pattern on the periphery of our community. Mental health experts have linked prolonged delays and, un on and ongoing uncertainty to the severity of mental health problems and the high risk of suicide among this group, including among children as young as 10 or 11. But more fundamentally, the stakes are so high with decisions about refugee status that we must get them right. This unique process for assessing and reviewing the claims of asylum seekers in the legacy caseload increases the risk of error. And error, as I said before, can mean sending someone back to a country where they face a real risk of persecution or even death. As a country, we should not accept this. Our report provides practical recommendations for improving the process for making and reviewing these decisions to safeguard the human rights of an exceptionally, exceptionally vulnerable group of people. The final presentation on this panel was given by Mary Ann Kenny and Professor Nicholas Proctor. Mary Ann Kenny is Associate Professor in the School of Law at Murdoch University and an adjunct Associate Professor in the Centre for Human Rights Education at Curtin University. Nicholas Proctor is Chair of Mental Health Nursing and Leader of the Mental Health and Suicide Prevention Research Group at the University of South Australia. They presented on the topic Refugee Status Determination, Mental Distress and Lethal Hopelessness – Challenges for Legal Professionals. Both myself and Nicholas Proctor have been carrying out some research with legal professionals, the people at the coalface who are working with this um, particular caseload. And you talked about the name Legacy Caseload. We decided, in fact, to go for the Fast Track Assessment Caseload. So, as we've talked about, it's, it's less than fast, and, and, and we'll speak about that a little bit. Um, we just want to acknowledge at the beginning the incredible work um, that has been done by legal professionals, and in that I mean lawyers and migration agents who've done an incredible job supporting people in this caseload. Uh, we also recognise and, and respect the resilience of people with lived experience in this room. Some of what um, Nicholas and I will be talking about may be upsetting and triggering and I expect a lot of you can relate to what we're talking about. So we did want to start off by talking, referring you to these very significant agencies that can provide 
you with um, support if you need it. Um, so interestingly, um, as we've, we've talked about already, when we're looking at refugee status determination, the key issue is credibility, and we've had an excellent talk in relation to issues in terms of what impacts upon credibility. And research has demonstrated that refugee status determination process is one that causes distress for asylum seekers. We have been looking at, in the context of the fast track assessment caseload, and we found that the impact of this particular process, as, as really eloquently outlined in the report by the Human Rights Commission, has significant impacts upon mental health and sometimes leads to lethal consequences. So I'm going to be setting the scene and outlining what we've heard from legal professionals who have been working with the caseload, and Nicholas will be talking about the drivers of suicidality and responses. Um, I want to start with a, a story that was told to me by a lawyer, a migration agent, who was at a community legal centre in, in Queensland. Um, and for those of you who work in clinics, and I'm sure this will resonate, for those of you who haven't, it will provide a good beginning to give you some context for the research and the discussion to follow. The lawyer is providing pro bono assistance and recounts the difficulties of doing this when there's no funded legal services to assist the asylum seeker. So she says, he pushed an envelope across the table that contained a letter. His weathered face apologised, no English, help. He can't read in his own language, let alone read or write English, the legacy of his experience of war and persecution in his home country. He can't understand what this six-page, densely written, highly official letter wants of him. We're lucky the organisation I volunteer with as an immigration lawyer has access to interpreters. After introductions, this man tells me he does not understand what he has to do, but he can see he has little time in which to do it, in fact, just 28 days. He says he's so worried about not gaining protection from Australia, he cannot sleep. He, then he breaks down. For the next 10 minutes between racking sobs that he has no control over, he tells me he's failed his wife and children. I asked him when he arrived in Christmas Island. He can't remember. Finally, he says it was 2012. He can't remember the month or the day. He's got no hope of answering the 110 questions on the temporary protection visa application form, many of which have up to 14 sub-questions without assistance. Completing a protection application takes several hours to get down to the bare basics, especially when mental ill health is impacting, as it is now for many of these asylum seekers. So this particular interaction symbolises the intersection between complex trauma, language barriers, cross-cultural differences that inevitably impact upon asylum seekers' ability to recount their past experiences. At a deeper level, this interaction illustrates the difficulties of an asylum seeker understanding and engaging in a really complex legal process that will determine his future. So our research is looking at how do legal professionals um, consider, like the ones we, I just spoke about, see as the impact of this process on the mental health of their clients and how does that impact upon them engaging with this process. Um, in doing so, um, we've done an online survey of which we had 57 respondents from across Australia and I'm sure some of you are here today. Around 39 people completed the survey and I followed up with focus groups involving um, 56 participants. 
I'm not going to go through this slide. It just did take me a long time to put together, so I just want to pause briefly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, um, it's already been, uh, discussed um, by Ed in some detail. The only point I really, I guess in relation to the timeline that's set here, is we're talking about people who arrived in 2012. We've heard a really excellent account of issues around memory. People who came in 2012, fleeing their countries earlier than that, coming to finally the deadline of October 2017, and we're still processing cases. Um, the, in, as of July uh, 2019, of the, of the 30,000 in the fast-track caseload, there were still 8,500 people waiting for their cases to be dealt with. That, that is, they've been waiting for over seven years for their applications to be processed. After they are processed and if they're found to be a refugee, the best they can expect is temporary protection. So for some, that experience has become too overwhelming and in the past five years, we've seen at least 25 suspected or confirmed suicide deaths amongst those who've sought protection in Australia and many more have attempted and others have engaged in deliberate self-harm. So legal practitioners... Um, and migration agents working in this difficult environment are really central to the mental health of their clients. Um, they are key to building a credible case and a clear case. And given the lack of access to review or a, a full review, building a complete and, and clear case at the first instance is incredibly important. So they must talk to them about what's happened to them in the past, what they feel will happen to them in the future, the culture, vulnerabilities, all impact on their ability to talk about those issues. This quote from one of the participants in the research illustrates the difficulties that many legal practitioners face. While they're trained to gather and present information, they're not often trained in how to respond to the inevitable distress that it causes. When I asked in a survey if, the work, if your work from the, with clients in this group did they encounter people in uh, mental distress? I had one no. The rest were um, overwhelmingly yes. We asked participants to describe the impact of the fast-track assessment on their clients, and they used terms such as horrific, in this case, brutal, punitive. They identified that they would expect asylum seekers to have experienced particular stresses due to trauma in their home country, their journey to Australia and initial settlement. However, it's clear that given the problems they're encountering in Australia when they arrive, that the, and the fast track assessment process actually compounds the distress due to uncertainty and ongoing um, delays. When we asked people to compare the group, this group to other groups that they may have worked with, they overwhelmingly said they felt that this group were in a poorer state, mostly due to uncertainty and delays in, in establishing a process to determine their case. So when a legal practitioner had to come and speak to them, often with pressures because of cutbacks to legal services, maybe a day to collect their case, they had to get a person to talk about what happened to them for the first time in probably three or four years, and they may not have talked to anyone um, beforehand. This led to clients feeling like they were a burden, marginalised, vilified, unwanted, hopeless and forgotten. 
Refugee status determination is obviously very, um, uh, a very distressing process and their me clients' mental health is, is quite key to how they understand <coughs> and participate in that process. Um, just before I hand over to Nicholas, this is just a slide which just details the sorts of issues that legal practitioners and migration agents are dealing with. So they're witnessing high levels of distress from crying, emotions, to hopelessness, fearful, all the way to suicidal ideation. And that, I'm not going to talk about that, I'll skip through that, it does lead to those sorts of difficulties in preparing a case. This presents significant challenges for legal practitioners in terms of working with this group. They talked about it being one of the hardest things that they've ever had to deal with. They felt difficulties around trying to work with clients where they were deliberately triggering um, them in terms of some of their claims and their trauma. So the fast track assessment process has presented real logistical and procedural challenges for asylum seekers and for legal professionals that we've not experienced before in Australia. Asylum seekers in this caseload are facing unimaginably complex processes with profound effects on their mental health. I want to end on an interaction I had with one of the participants who spoke about having a client call up so distressed that he talked about ending his life. I asked him how did he respond to that and how did he try to engage him in that with assistance at their legal service. And he said, okay, so I think in that instance, I mean, I think you're just looking to keep them alive, I suppose. And so like I think the legal stuff goes out the window. I'll hand over to Nicholas. Thank you, Marianne. So, um, as Marianne has just said, that we've, we've seen this unprecedented surge of suicide deaths amongst people in the fast track assessment caseload. Now, our group at the University of South Australia is primarily concerned with suicidality, understanding the suicidal mind of an asylum seeker. We've worked really hard in the last few years to uh, do the, deep, the deepest dive possible uh, based on publicly available information. And we're really seeing some very disturbing figures. Um, and we've also done some benchmarking against what we would normally see in Australian society. So we would normally see in Australian society, and, and suicide deaths are counted in 100,000, so we might say, 16 per 100,000 for adult males. Our crude estimates for suicide deaths amongst male asylum seekers in the fast track assessment caseload is 26 per 100,000. So that's significantly higher than what you would normally see um, in the Australian population. So if I was to collapse the last 10 to 15 years of work into one slide about the drivers of suicide related distress, this is what I'm seeing. And I've deliberately tried to compress this into one slide. I think the last statement is probably the most important. <laughs> enough is enough. I mean, people have excruciating and unendurable states of uncertainty. Um, they're unendurable, excruciating and insurmountable. Um, and what we've seen, if you like, is a deepening cycle of mental distress. People acquire a capability to die by suicide. To die by suicide is not an easy thing to do. But this group have a range of events and experiences that lead them to acquire a capability 
and there's a lot more that I could say about uh, what I mean by acquired capability, but is essentially becoming desensitised to emotional distress and desensitised to pain through self-harm and self-soothing behaviours acting out of inner turmoil and tension release. So we have a deepening cycle of mental distress for this particular group. And it's less about a movement towards death, and I think it's more about a movement away from something, and it is away from those excruciating states. People really want to do well. Fundamentally, and this is true more broadly in the field of suicidology, fundamentally, if you reduce the level of suffering, people will choose to live. If you reduce the level of anguish, people will choose to live. So our team have been working really hard to advance trauma-informed practice thinking. And trauma-informed practice thinking fundamentally incorporates trauma awareness and steps that we can take to actively resist re-traumatisation. So I've spent some time with judicial officers recently, um, legal representatives, people working in the non-government sector, to be able to help them to take steps that are trauma-informed in interviewing the use of uninvited touch in certain settings, as well as hospital and human service workers. So, and despite all of this and all of what we know and all of what we've discovered through our careers and what we know about through the discussions that we've been having today, there is enough trauma happening for this group already. So one, the smaller steps that we can take to reduce and actively resist re-traumatisation are incredibly important. And this is a very um, important body of work. Um, and emotional connections are so true. And this is where it becomes such a vexed issue for legal representatives, legal professionals. Because on the one hand, everything resolves very much on the story and getting that story right. And we know that a traumatised brain works very differently to a non-traumatised brain. So there's a lot here. It's complicated. But what we also know that human connection is particularly powerful. And in suicidal states, when a person doesn't feel there's an intimate connection, this person in suicidal crisis doesn't feel that there's an intimate connection between him or herself and the person helping them, it's of limited protective value. So we know that generally in suicidality. Um, for this group, when things are so incredibly hopeless, um, human connection and relationships um, are so important. So there's some brain science here because we're really talking about that prefrontal cortex, that frontal lobe, more sophisticated part of the brain, rather than the fear centres in the brain. The fear centres in the brain, the organ called the amygdala in particular, is really what gets activated by a range of these processes and certainly the way people are spoken about, spoken to, referred to, and all of the other markers of stress-inducing or activation of suicidal mode or suicidal thinking. So I'm going to end my talk at this point and uh, perhaps go to the panel. So thank you very much, everyone.